Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode where I get to speak to incredible people and incredible leaders from all around the world. And today's uh, guest is probably not so far away, only about what 30 minutes, we're guessing, down the road from me, all the way in Birmingham. I met Nav, um, well, I think we met on LinkedIn and we decided straight away we needed to get together, we needed to have a conversation, and so we did. We met not so very long ago in the beautiful Belfry Hotel and we spent a good hour or so just chatting away and I was blown away by this lady. Nav, it's a, a, an absolute pleasure to have you on here. And what really struck me with you was when you were talking about all the work that you do, but you, about your past as an HR director, but your pathway to becoming an HR director was so different from any other HR director I've ever met. Uh, more often than not, HRDs talk about uh, CIPD qualifications, but you actually climbed your way up from the very bottom without qualifications and you have been an HRD for many, many organisations. Do you want to just tell me about your journey? Sure. Thank you for having me on call. Um, so I, I'd always had a passion for human behaviour, right from kind of my A-levels when I studied sociology. And I always knew I wanted to do something relating to human behavior but but not necessarily in the medical field and I sat and I thought mm, what can I do what can I really do um to have an impact and I just went into HR so did my degree um specialized in HR and then did a master's and then kind of stopped there because I'd had enough of studying and I wanted to get out there in the in the real world so left university and then I actually saw a new warehouse a new warehouse being built where I lived at the time in in Bedford and just randomly I wrote to to the organization and said I see that you're building a warehouse I'd love to come and work for you I've just passed my um degree so can I just come along and I it moved really quickly so I was offered um a HR role it was great because it was a brand new greenfield site set up from scratch and I think that was the best opportunity for for getting into HR um, and then things escalated from there. So, you know, I moved up, uh, joined as an HR administrator, was made team leader, uh, progressed, did various roles within that organisation. And then I got married and left Bedford and moved across to, to Birmingham. Um, and then, you know, I did a number of roles, starting at business partner level, uh, worked my way up. But what I found was that it was never about... Have you got CIPD? Show me your qualifications. It was always that impact that I was demonstrating, I guess. But it was never, it was never something I set out at that time to do. It was never I need to go and make an impact. Um, it just, it just kind of happened. 
And so I, you know, I was always really ambitious. And so I was like, right, I'm in this role, but what's the next role? That was my mentality of, right, I'm doing this. I'm going to do a great job, but I've got my eye on the next role. And at the time, I always thought, no, I've just settle down. I'd, I'd have conversations with myself, settle down. Calm down. Just do this job, do it to your ability, and then we'll see. I was always keen to like, right, I'm going to do this, and then what's the next? So I guess mentally I was preparing myself for the next role, and I'd always try to operate at a level above where I was. And I think looking back now, that's what's helped me progress to to where I was. And so I'm trying to think how many jobs I've had over the last 20 years. I would say I probably had about 10. Wow. You know, and again, back in the day, it was, well, you need to stay somewhere. You, you can't move around. It's not great. It doesn't look great on your CV. But I was always of the opinion that you get so much exposure and you can try different industries because every industry is different, but people are people. And so you need to be um, mindful of the client base that you're working with, but HR is HR. Yeah. Do you know, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right there. Now, uh, I often have thought about that in the context of leadership. Leadership is leadership wherever mm -hmm. you go. And uh, the more I go into other organizations and, and it might be an industry that I know nothing about, when they start telling me about some of their big challenges, some of their people issues, some of their culture issues and relationship building, it all boils down to the same thing, inevitably. And ultimately, uh, I always end up having a conversation around uh, emotional intelligence or around uh, performance uh, or around processes. And it's the same with every single organisation. So HR is all about people. I, I think it takes an awful lot of courage to have done what you've done, to have this transience in your lifestyle, in your in your professional lifestyle, where you have that courage to move from organisation to organisation to organisation. And I think you're right. You know, every organisation that you go into, you pick up some different skill sets or different knowledge or awareness. And you take that on to, into the next one and that helps you evolve and grow as a human being and as a leader. Um, and I often think, you know, one of my downsides, if, I, if I'm honest with myself, is I spent 32 years in the police service. And now as I reflect back, I often say to myself, why didn't I at least move from force to force, if not, you know, industry to industry? Um, I'm grateful for the time that I spent there, but I think now I recognise that uh, I might have missed a trick or two, just the same as uh, you have actually explored in your life. So what do you think is the wisdom that you've picked up from going to all of these different organisations, apart from the fact that people are people are people? So I think one of the key things is understanding what makes people in that particular organisation tick. So we've already said that people and culture and HR are those wherever you go. Um, but I think when we think about what people do in those organisations, and I mean very, very basic, you know, so every organisation that I joined and every client that I work with now, I have sat down with people who work, you know, who are doing the seemingly people who are not ignored, that's, that's not that's wrong, but people who are overlooked, you know, at, at grassroots level, tell me what you're doing, tell me, you know, what buttons you press, what work you're doing, where it goes, and, that, and the purpose of that is to understand the, the pain points in, in the employee experience for people that are delivering on, you know, the, the bigger picture. Um, and so, I, you know, I've learned things along the way around people in manufacturing environments who stand there day in, day out, sorting, you know, raw materials. And then for them, their biggest pain point is when they press an alarm and no one comes to, to get mm -hmm. them, you know. And for them, for them, that's a big pain point. 
Um, but for everyone else sat in the office or other leaders, it was, no, you don't need to go there. You don't need to go and speak with people who are doing the work. Whereas I fundamentally, that's one of my big uh, you know, principles around when I join anywhere, I like to learn about what happens, who does what, what are the pain points, and then understand how I can fix those. Um, because ultimately people are happy. I think you and I are very similar in that sense, aren't we? We, we had this conversation where uh, we both recognise the importance of speaking to people who are doing perhaps the lowest level of jobs. Actually, mm. I found that the I learned more from people like the cleaners, the caretakers than I did from some of my peers because they know what's going on. And when you connect with them at, at a very human level, you get a lot of what I used to call community intelligence coming back into you. Yeah. And as an HR professional, you rely on that. So whilst people, you know, they will tell you something as, a, as an HR um, business partner or someone in a management team, quite often in some industries or generally perhaps, I don't know, people will tell you what you want to hear because it's just easier. Yeah. It's easier to just say everything's fine. I don't need anything or don't want to make a fuss. But then when you talk to certain individuals, those key influences, I call them in business, there's you, everyone knows somebody who, who everyone goes to or goes for advice or just knows someone who's been there a long time you know their characteristics will be different but there will be people who are the key influences and you get them on side you know i've cracked some really tough nuts in retail organizations people have been there for 30 35 40 years and at that point they'd been there longer than i was around um and the only reason was i've connected with them i talked with them and then you find out what's going on what people are saying behind management's um, backs, really. Um, you get to find out gossip, if that's a word, but you understand what's going on and you can then influence that. Yeah, and don't you find that sometimes in organisations, I mean, I was just reading some LinkedIn posts today about the police service and the police service is big in the news right now. Obviously, I have a, still a, 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 an incredible interest around the police service. I'm always monitoring what's going on. Uh, but there was uh, something that caught my eye and it was a conference that was held uh, yesterday in a police force. It was a national conference that was all around. How do we retain our officers? Now, I don't, I don't know if you know, but across the police service, there's much research been done out there that demonstrates, by and large, that one in five police officers are thinking about leaving the police service because of paying conditions. They're not happy where they are. Uh, and th these are shocking figures. So there's a new conference that was held yesterday. And in essence, what I picked up from this conference, I have to explore it a bit more, is that uh, they they got a collection of views from internally from uh, people involved in that specific area of business, I guess. And I found myself thinking, yes, but if you're only ever going to talk to those people involved in that area of business across the police service, then what? What quality of feedback are you going to get? What we really need to be doing is understanding from the grassroots level, why are people leaving in the first place? And then do it the other way around, you know, look at it from the other end of the telescope. Rather than having the experts sitting there because the experts have been doing what they've been doing all this time, and clearly something's not working, why not look at it through the other end of the telescope? So things like focus groups are very, very important. But sometimes when organisations pull focus groups together, they haven't done the hard work beforehand, the relationship building, creating the environment where people feel confident in giving the feedback. Uh, because 
I've been into this in, in situations where you have a focus group, but because the environment, the culture in which you operate is so blame, is such a blame culture, or you feel that you're not psychologically safe, you don't say what's truly on your mind. You just follow a pathway that's the the pathway that everyone thinks needs to be followed. So consequently, it's a waste on the organization's time by pulling the focus group together because you're not getting quality from it. And also it doesn't serve the eventual outcome that's desired. Yeah, I agree. And that's, that's my primary purpose that anywhere I go. The reason I build those relationships and actually take time to, to do that is because later on, when I then ask for feedback and, and create a feedback culture, because I think that's absolutely key anyway. Absolutely. Whether there are problems or not, I, I think a feedback culture is seen as a solution to something that's wrong, but actually it should be a way of working. It should be continuous feedback and continuous improvement. So whenever I build those, those relationships and take time out, and in the past I've been criticised for that, it's why are you spending time talking to these people? And it's like, I don't like that. I just don't like what you're asking me here because... You're just talking to people. What's wrong with that? You know, um, I think it's more and more, it's more and more okay these days. But just going back to your point, it is about making sure that you build those relationships. People then, um, you know, give you that feedback. But also the, the key there is around questioning. So you've got to have some really powerful questions. People need to understand the purpose of the, the focus group or the, the feedback session. They need to understand what's going to happen with the feedback. And they need to feel psychologically safe in order to, to give you that feedback. But the power for me has always been in the question. So asking questions that are really different. So whilst there's nothing wrong with what, what's, you know, how, how are you feeling at work? And, you know, tell me about stuff that's good and things that, that are annoying you. Sometimes it's questions like, if I could wave a magic wand and f- walk out of here, wave a magic wand and things would be fixed, what would that be? And people, oh, no, but that's never going to happen now. You can't fix this and this. And I said, if I don't know, we can't get there. Now, I never promise to fix stuff because that's never going to happen. But you can have an impact and you can address things because sometimes it isn't about fixing things. It's about addressing elephants in the room. Um, And so I think powerful questioning is, is really key. I love your idea of questioning. I think questions are incredibly important. And obviously, I do a lot of coaching. uh, And when I'm coaching leaders, uh, I always have to think long and hard about the right question to get the very best out of it uh, for that uh, client. Uh, And I think, you know, one of my favourite questions when I speak to senior executives and leaders is, okay, so we are where we are here. And if we could move to a different place, what would that be? Very similar to your question. And then the th- follow-up question for me. So what is the gap? What's the gap between here and there? So what is the gap that needs to be filled? What's the journey that we need to undertake to get to there? And that moves it from the what to the how. Uh, and I think that's really, really powerful for me. Uh, when it talk, When we talk about the what and the how as well, I think times have changed. I think there was a time when we were, you know, 30, 40 years ago when everything was about the what. What is it that we, we're we going to do? What is it that we need to achieve? So, you know, most organizations were driven by KPIs and performance indicators. And then there was an awareness around the 1990s, I think, where we started thinking about the how. And, you know, we had like BSI standards, we had ISO um, 9001 come in, and that was about processes. So how are we going to do what it is that we're going to do? Then we had in the, in the early noughties, we had it even more uh, greater awareness. And then we started thinking about the why. 
to why are we doing what we're doing? What's our purpose? And, you know, the whole concept of purpose became really, really powerful. And I think we've gone through a fourth transition now, uh, particularly since COVID. It's about the who. So who is going to do what? Who is important? Who are the people that are going to do the work? Who are the people that we're going to be serving? And I think people now form a bigger part of the the, the, the thinking, the philosophy behind what we do as an organisation or a business. And any organisation that is not thinking about its people or its stakeholders, I think, is, uh, is, is going to struggle going forward. I agree. And one of the things I always say when I, when I talk to, to clients or leaders is around, it doesn't matter what business it is, it can be an online business, it can be a, you know, a mm. warehouse, it can be a retail outlet. If you remove all of the people, it literally is just a building or a website. And then they sit back and think, yeah. I said, so all of that other stuff comes is secondary. Yeah. Who we have, the fact that they're, you know, reaching their potential, they're happy, they're going to stay. Um, they're in line with values. They understand where we're going. That is the foundation. That is the ultimate. And then everything else comes after that. So tell me about some of the, the, the organisations or types of organisations or sectors that you've worked in since you branched out on your own, so to speak. So since I've, so I always started my career with the big, big guns, you know, big uh, manufacturing organisations, retail organisations, telecoms. Um, and then since I made the transition to much smaller organisations, um, it's been very different, really diverse mm-hmm. um, industries ranging from healthcare through to um, professional services. Um, I'm working with a charity at the moment as well. And what you find is that each of them have the same problems, but they need to be dealt with in a certain, in a in a very different way. And so, some of the work has revolved around creating performance um, metrics and around having a framework to have performance discussions. Because I think there's this realization that whilst you know there's a move away from the term human resources, it's just really old school, I think now. But like anything that we that we have, quite often the organisations that I've worked with, people is the biggest cost line you know one of one of the organizations is 80 percent of all the costs are people costs salaries wages things like that and so it's how do we maximize that and so this particular organization that i was working with everyone knew you know how people were performing but there was never any way to measure it there was never any framework to have a discussion about it and then never any um tools and techniques to make sure that people are engaged they feel part of what we're doing and they understand that if they're not performing, how to get better. But also if they are performing, to get that pat on the back because there is, there's just this whole gap around performance discussions. Because I think even with that term, performance management, people think, oh, no, I'm going to be put on a performance improvement plan and it's a bad thing. And even what I found as I've branched out is using different terminology for what we always do. You know, so things like um, ESG and CSR, so you know, that corporate social responsibility, even that is being more responsible, you know, um, and it's positioning it very differently because it, going back to performance, you use that term performance management, it's like, no, no. And so what I like to talk about is high performing teams and enabling that high performance because that's, I think, where we're going. To your point around post-COVID, it's about that high performance and it's about team gelling and working together. You're so right. You've hit the nail on the head. I, I did a LinkedIn post only yesterday about this very same issue and said, what does a high performing team team look like? Uh, and for me, it always comes down to culture. 
what is the personality or the culture or the environment that you've created within that team? If the people feel valued and the people feel uh, a sense of freedom uh, around their professional judgment to, to do the job that they think is the best way of doing it because of their expertise, um, then people will excel in that. But if people are micromanaged or told how to do something or you have a command and control kind of st- relationship style, leadership style within your team, then they will do the job, but they will do it to the minimum standard. And that's what we call quiet quitting, when people only work to the very bare minimum. But there's an incredible potential with every single human being that works in your organisation. And surely, surely it's about getting them to work to their fullest potential. And I genuinely believe that most people do want to work to that level. People, when they only work to a minimum standard, don't walk away feeling uh, that they've uh, that they've uh, given all of the, the that they can do. They don't feel fulfilled. I think people feel fulfilled when they when they push themselves uh, beyond their own boundaries. But in order for them to do that, we have to create the right culture. We have to create the right environment, and then we we create a high performing culture. For me, high performing cultures is not whipping people to focus in on the performance metrics or the KPIs that we are driven to out of desperation sometimes driven to aspire towards far from it and i think one of the key things that's often missed when we talk about high performing teams is when new people are introduced into that team now i've worked with a number of organizations who have have you know operated for some time and then again in response to oh we've got a, we've got a problem here people are leaving mm. or engagement is low suddenly then it's oh we need to look at onboarding we need to think about our culture and how we introduce people to our culture and what I found with high performing teams or those that aspire to be high performing is sometimes there's not enough effort into introducing people into that team and into the culture and setting out what's okay and what isn't um, because I think when we do that and we you, know, you, you onboard people in the correct way um, and introduce people to the culture and where we're going there's less time worrying about and I've experienced this myself when I've joined teams there's less time worrying do I fit in will I be okay do people like me um, have I got the skills you, know, you spend so much time comparing yourself with other people in that team that your focus is not on the job in hand and actually it turns around and you're not performing because you're too worried about whether you fit in so high performance is about right welcome to this team this is what we're about these are the standards. This is what's expected. This is how we work. Um, you know, we we are responsible to each other. Um, we can make mistakes. And all of those things, you set it out. And then when you have someone that joins the team, what you often find is they just crack on. And, and that is the sign of a good team. You can just move and be very agile as opposed to everyone stopping back, welcoming a new member of the team. And then moving forward, it can be really key. So I think certainly that bit is missed around when we welcome new people into teams. In terms of the onboarding process, um, many organisations simply don't have an onboarding process. You know, people come, uh, they'll go through the recruitment process, they get accepted into the organisation, they get their letter, they get a start date, and Bob's your uncle. <laughs> Off you go. But I think the onboarding process is critical, isn't it, in, in so much as, uh, you know, it's an introduction to the values of the organisation or the team uh, to allow that person to um, see whether they align to those values and find their place within the team. And this is Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs right there, the psychological needs. Where do I fit into that organisation or that team? But you've got to give people the time and space to be able to do that. Um, 
onboarding is also the opportunity to form those relationships and and, and find out who the individuals are and allow that process of relationship building that is critical in in team building. But I don't know about you, you've worked in far more organisations, you know, in in your career than I have in my career. Uh, I've had the great pleasure of working with many organisations since. But you must have seen this this frustration around onboarding or lack of onboarding that many organisations have. Yeah, I have. And I think, like, to, to my point earlier, it's always when there's a problem. So one particular organisation that I, I worked with, you know, the, the, the turnover rate or the number of people leaving within 12 months was something like 45%. And you think, right, clearly there's something going on here. Um, so and what is it? What is it? And And what I find is when they're walking out the door, it's too late. You can ask them whatever you want to ask people. Um, they just want to go. And I found that in my experience, you know, working with organisations where you get to a certain stage and it's great doing exit interviews, but really we should be doing the stay interviews. And Yes, I agree with you. And I think onboarding is part of that. Onboarding is this is where we are. Um, these are our values. This is where you fit in. These are And, and all the niceties around there's the car park, whatever, you know, all of those basics. Um, but actually we're going to want to have regular check-ins with you and I found that that really works so when you have people introduced into the business you know after one week and after two weeks after four weeks um you know eight and 12 weeks whatever it works for the business but you know quite often in the past it was seen as a bit of a waste of time having a chat talking about these exit interviews I mean they've been around for a long long time some organizations do them better than other organizations I've seen many an organization that has played paid a bit of a lip service to the exit interviews. It's a set set of questions. Uh, we've just got to go through these questions. Inevitably, it's an HR person who ends up delivering the exit interview. I think it should be the the team leader or the or, or the or the one of the senior leaders of the organisation. But <clears throat> some poor old HR person ends up doing this exit interview. It's a process, and unless you do something with that exit interview, um, it's 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 meaningless, isn't it? Right. But so many organisations don't do much with these exit interviews. So that's an opportunity missed. But as you quite rightly say, it's too far down the track. It's not as if we're going to bring that person back into the organisation. We're not going to reduce the attrition rate. So um, it's important that we have these stay interviews, uh, whether it's to explore what is it that you find so great about this organisation or whether it's to what would help you if, if you were considering leaving this organisation, or if you know anybody who's considering leaving this organisation, what would we need to fix to keep them here? You know, what can we do to make this organisation a better place for you to be? But again, it comes back down to if you are going to ask those kind of questions, you have to create the environment where the person feels safe enough to answer those truthfully and honestly. Yeah, and feedback is only as meaningful as the action that comes from it, that it inspires. So, you know, again, having done many, being that HR person that's done exit interviews and people are just genuinely, they've checked hmm. out, they've checked out. And so, you know, one of the questions that typically is on ex- every exit interview is, you know, what could make you stay? And by that point, it's nothing. But I think your point around stay interviews and, you know, what is keeping you here is so powerful because then, you know, you can act on that. And it's another way of getting that when I talk about a feedback culture it isn't just one thing there's lots of different things that that you know build into that feedback strategy so exit interviews is one stay interviews is another but just generally you know 
having having one-to-ones and just having conversations. I was just going to say, I think everything that you've talked about there, for me, comes down to one phrase, relationship building, that we create relationships uh, across the organisation, whether it is talking to the cleaners we talked about early on, or whether it is having genuine conversations with your peers, with your with your senior people in the organisation, or with the most junior of peers, person. If you create this, this, if you have this focus around relationship building, then you create a culture based on trust. And when you have a culture based on trust, then the conversations can be just so much more uh, transparent uh, and, and, and genuine, can't they? So just talking about relationship building, I, we've got a few minutes left and we had a quick discussion around networking. Now, I don't attend many networking events because <laughs> my experience of networking events with some of the networking events that I've been to is that the same people turn up day in, day out to one networking event, then another one, then another one, different networking events, but it's the same lot of people that turn up. So I often think to myself, yes, okay, I'm building relationships with people, but what is that going to do? Where's the value in that? Am I wrong? I don't know. I mean, I'm very new to networking. And so I'm still trying to find my feet with it. And you're right, Paul. You know, a a lot of the events I've attended, they're different events, but you get the same faces. You do get some new ones, which is great. Mm. But um, it is about, so what I'm finding is that those regular people are actually those that are putting me in touch with other people. So the key to networking for me is around, it's never going to, it's very unlikely, branching or never, going to be someone in that room who needs HR support. Who needs your services, absolutely. What I have found, um, and what you might may find useful, is that I'm then introduced to other people who may um, need some support or that I can help. You know, that I can just call on for advice. It isn't, you know, I think we spoke, when we spoke, one of the things I hate absolutely with a passion is selling. I will never sell. I will never say, oh, this is what I do and come and work for me. It will come, come and work with me. Sorry. It's just nothing I do. But what I find with networking is you build those relationships and people sell, talk for you, about you, without you having to do anything. So I think if you make the right impression and you, you follow up on networking. So I've met loads of people. And there are lots that I've followed up with, um, with conversations, one-to-ones, and we still do that. Now, I'm not getting anything from it. They're not getting anything from it. But it's a, going back. It's a relationship. It's somebody else I know. It's building that community of people around me. Because working for yourself is very lonely. For someone like me who loves to talk, be out there, out and about, working on your own is really hard. And so networking, I think, helps with with that as well. Yes, I think it does. I think for the extroverts amongst us, um, it really helps with mental health as well because you need to be around people, right? Uh, I'm quite lucky as an introvert. I'm quite happy in my own little space. And my networking very often consists of one-to-one relationships that I'm building with people. So it's a, a deep quality like yourself. You know, we met, we had a great time, we understood each other, saw where each other were coming from. Uh, and I think would be more more inclined to push work each other's way or to join up and collaborate moving forward because we now understand each other at a very valued uh, level. But I think you're right. I think with networking, um, it is important to focus on networking, uh, to build relationships, not networking, to sell. And I see so many people who I connect with, whether it's in a physical network or whether it's just a connection on LinkedIn. Next thing you hear, they're trying to sell to you and you think, oh my goodness, here we go again. You know, I know. it's so frustrating. I know. It puts it? me off. Sometimes <laughs> I'm reluctant to go or reluctant to hit connect with someone or, or read or think something 
thinking they're going to sell. And quite, I get so many. I don't know about you, Cole. I get so many in my DMs around. I've got to the point now, uh, now, and I'll be honest with you, I now look at the title of the person. If the, if the title of the person is something like, I help coaches to 10x their business, I'm like, I'm sorry. Yeah. I know what's going to happen here. So yeah. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I just don't accept them in the first instance. I know. Well, <laughs> see, I'm like that. But then part of it, and I, and I will grow out of this, which is, yeah, but they're a person and they've reached out. And, and then I think, stop being so horrible now. Exactly. exactly. And then I feel guilty. <laughs> I feel really guilty. But I know, I know. I've got to just be, no, this is not for me. And uh, yeah, that's the yeah, skill. <laughs> you need to be ruthless with this. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Listen, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. I really have enjoyed it. Um, you speak my language and let's hope that people hear what we have to say. Thank you so much, Nav Matarik. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.